I was thinking about getting us a more official intro, and I thought about like using my radio voice to say, "You're listening to Piecing It All Together with Randy Woodley and Bo Sanders," and then the music starts. But then I was like, "Well, wait a minute!" But then I'm talking later, and I don't sound like that, so that's not going to work. So I might have a friend do a voiceover or something. Well, why don't you start with that, and then let's go from there. <laughs> all right. Well, I'm already here recording, so we can do that. Okay. Hey, welcome to Piecing It All Together. I'm Bo Sanders. And I'm Randy Woodley. And we are trying to piece this whole thing together with you. Let's do it. Randy, uh, we're going to talk today about... Uh, it's getting ugly out there. Yeah, mighty ugly. Oh, boy. I'm starting to get a little nervous, man. Yeah, it's... It's, uh, as I say, the chickens have come home to roost. It seems like it, yes. And one of the things I want to talk about is um, when I when I went to school, I picked up on this thing called critical theory, and there's four categories of things I started sort of watching for. They're like my lens through which I watch the news. Uh-huh. And so my four things, and because I'm a preacher, I made them all start with the same letter. Uh-huh. So my, uh, my four things are discouragement, which I'm sensing a lot about there. Dysfunction, which we are watching daily. Uh, decline and disaster. And so on my little four things that I, my litmus test that I, I watch for, I am registering red on all four right now. Yeah, that, that, I just want to say that what we're watching now is actually the chickens have come home to roost is We've watched a, a dysfunctional government, and it's dealing with indigenous peoples and other kinds of peoples who were not, um, you know, white landowning males at one point, and then later just white males, and then later just white folks. Um, we are watching uh, basically uh, what happens when a system is a sick system, and it continues to be put in place. Eventually, it's if it's not sustaining, it will eventually stop. And uh, we're starting to see breaks. This system is about to fall apart, and uh, the wheels are about to come off. Now, it might take yeah. a couple more years, but the wheels are coming off. It does seem like all the, the the warning signs, all the lights on the dashboard are lit up right now that we are in crisis. So, hey, before we get any deeper down that rabbit hole, I wanted to say a couple things. I want to thank our listeners and our Patreon supporters for their faithful support and uh, helping us pay the bills as far as our hosting fees and uh, other services that we use to put out this podcast. Uh, We have lost a couple Patreon supporters recently just because their situation changed. So we wanted to ask if you enjoy the show and want to help uh, support it and and to broaden the audience and invite the conversation, uh, please support us on Patreon. And you had an idea that with our uh, book uh, coming out this year that we wanted to reward our Patreon supporters by giving them, uh, do we want to say a book? Well, I think, why don't we ask them what they want us to do? All right. So, um, hey, Patreon supporters uh, or potential supporters, um, I don't want to say at what level would you support us for a book? (laughs) But we do have a book coming out. Uh, the book is hopefully going to be out in uh, late February, 1st of March. And uh, it's published by Wiffenstock. And the book's called Decolonizing Evangelicalism, an 11.59 p.m. conversation. So what should we say? Hey, we'll give you a book if you do this. 
So let us know. Because we've got it set up right now that people can give at the $1 level, and they do, and we really appreciate that. Some people give at the $10 a month level, and then there's some that really go for it at the $20 level. And um, obviously, that is a huge thing for us. So we want to say thank you in some way. So let yeah. us know how we can. And, and we don't want to be manipulative in any yeah. way, shape, or form. You know, we're not going to anoint handkerchiefs and send them to you for a $100 bill or anything like that. But we want to get our book out, and we, want, and we do want your support. So let's, let's figure out some kind of a trade. Yeah. And um, it looks like coming up, we're going to be at a conference in April, and we're uh, hoping to have a book release party when this thing comes out so uh, we could get, give you free tickets to that. We, w- we want to say thank you uh, for your support, so let us know how we can do that. Yeah, and that would be in Seattle at the yeah. Inhabit, the Inhabit conference. conference. It's the 10-year anniversary of Inhabit. Yeah. And so you and I are both going to be there, and we're looking forward to, uh, to being there and to having a live podcast. Yeah, sounds We're great. working on the details right now. Hey, the other thing we wanted to invite everybody to is a book discussion group that we have. It's the second Tuesday of every month at 5.30 p.m. We're going to have an online discussion group of Rescuing the Gospel from the Cowboys, a Native American expression of the Jesus Way by Richard Twist. Yeah, and what also we want to say something about, you know, right now because of evangelicalism is such a kind of a hot-button topic, mm-hmm. um, we'll be discussing that. We've got a book coming out that's that's uh, d- directly um, sort of indicting and trying to expose some things in evangelicalism um, and critiquing it. Um, and, uh, you know, we're doing some books that, like, you know, talking about, Jesus way. But what I want to remind people is that this is not just a quote unquote Christian podcast. It's not just for evangelicals or some other group like that. Um, We want you to be a part of this conversation, regardless of your beliefs, regardless of uh, what religion you are or, or whether you have any religion whatsoever. So we want to welcome everybody. Yes, that is a very, very good reminder. Uh, the book discussion group is free to join. You don't have to be a Patreon supporter or have an access code or anything. Uh, just look for the links on both Facebook and our website, piecingitalltogether.com. You can also email us at connect at piecingitalltogether.com, and um, we can send you an access code that way. You can join on both Zoom or Facebook Live. Sounds groovy. All right. So... One of the things that's been rotating in the news recently is um, a little viral video uh, called Him for the 81%. And it was written by a, a worship a pastor, worship leader in Indiana. And uh, let me get his name just so that we give him credit. Oh, Daniel. Shoot. Yeah. Dietrich, was it? Yep. Okay. And it is making its rounds. People have been sharing it widely, and it's getting lots of play and making it on all sorts of news services. And one of the reasons that it's touched a nerve is uh, the 81%, for those who don't know that number. There's a lot of numbers you have to know now, like the 99 and the 1, right? There's (laughs) all sorts of numbers you have to know these days. But um, 81% is sort of uh, become a touchstone 
uh, code for the support of the white evangelicals for uh, President Trump. And so there's a lot of confusion around this because not only uh, historically what evangelicals have said that they believe in and value, and it seems to be very hypocritical and uh, confusing for people as to why this marriage of power and influence, but no matter what the administration does or what this man tweets, uh, the support seems to be unshakable. And so that has caused a secondary conversation uh, amongst people who are, are wondering, you know, it's one thing to vote for a guy, but then as the ongoing news cycle keeps putting up more and more troubling news, but for the support to be unwavering, that number doesn't seem to change. It's actually caused people who uh, maybe at the beginning weren't that concerned to grow very concerned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and uh, there's all kinds of names out there. Folks are, you know, they're evangelicals and ex-evangelicals and post-evangelicals and, mm-hmm. uh, you know. Uh, progressive evangelicals. Yeah, progressive evangelicals, uh, non-evangelical. Uh, you know, anti-evangelical. So, uh, but evangelical is a word that just keeps coming up more and more in the last several weeks. And um, we're, we're hoping that, uh, that we can actually address some of the the issues to give some clarity to what's happening. I don't know if you have any initial thought uh, or if you uh, are okay. I wanted to actually present an idea to you and get your feedback on it. And, um, and then we take it from there. But I wanted to give you a chance to, to say, is there anything initially that you want to make sure is in the, the bread before we begin to mix it? Well, I just want people to understand that evangelicalism is really, I mean, we could go back a lot farther. But, but basically it was a, a term uh, that sort of started sticking to people who were in the mid to late uh, 19th century, people like Charles Finney and, you know, a- Angela Grimke and um, uh, Theodore Weld. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of folks, but these were people who were involved in a lot of social action. They were involved in, you know, um, mm-hmm. uh, anti-slavery abolition. They were involved in uh, getting young people, uh, kids out of workplaces, work laws, uh, helping people who were committed to at that time called insane asylums. They were involved in, of course, they were involved in temperance movements. So, uh, and that didn't work out so well, but, uh, you know, the, uh, they were a lot of them against the cult of domesticity where women's only legal rights and roles were in the home and they didn't even have the rights of their own children. So, um, that was sort of an evangelical of the of the past. And now it's kind of crazy because most of those who are identifying as evangelicals are now the extreme opposite of that position. And that's kind of where we find ourselves. Yeah. Of of those positions of social justice and, you know, social action. Yeah, yeah. It, It actually is interesting to look at the historical migration from those early values that sort of gave them their zest and zeal and verve and vibe. And then to, to see what has become, uh, and, you know, for most people that I talk to, they really became aware of the change in the late 70s and 
early 80s. I remember Time Magazine uh, famously called, I think it was 77 maybe, the year of the evangelical because of Jimmy Carter. Right. And, uh, and then the moral majority and the religious right in the 80s. And so it started to come in onto people's radar. Well, in yeah. the 40s. Yeah, go ahead. Well, you had a counter movement also. You had in 1973 the Chicago Declaration with folks like Ron Sider and John Perkins and, you know, all kinds of people who, uh, Jim Wallace and others who uh, sort of said, you know, no, we have to bring this balance back to, to social justice as part of what it means to follow Jesus. And, and they were, um, I, I guess people now call it progressive evangelicals, um, but they were trying to sort of uh, bring a balance to that sort of, uh, fundamentalism, right. where an anti-social action, which all can be attributed back to the, you know, the the social movement or or religious movement, however you want to say it, um, yeah. in in the really the first part of the 20th century, between fundamentalism and progressivism or modernism, as they call. It. Right, and uh, in fairness, evangelicals would call that progressive uh, stream. They would call that, you know, the Christian left. Yeah, uh, which is not liberal Christianity, but it's uh, on its way on the slippery slope. Uh, that's, that's how they would see it. Yeah. The concern, yeah. When the 2016 elections happened, um, I ended up writing a thing in the wake of uh, those events called "The Dangers of Frankenstein Christianity," mm-hmm. and what had prompted me to do that was. Um, I remember several years before that, for me, the final straw was when I heard Sarah Palin say that waterboarding or uh, interrogation techniques, waterboarding was how we baptize terrorists. And that got applause in the religious circles. And uh, people thought that was quite funny and clever. And, um, and I realized that we were dealing with a, uh, what gets called Christianism, which is no longer related uh, to the teachings of the founder and to sort of the values that the original organization was based on. And so there's a change has happened, a, a, a drift towards something else. And so what I tried to do was say, how is it possible that what we see today is in any way connected to that thing um, it started so well, and it used to value these things. How has it become this other thing? And so I've sort of mapped out five incremental decisions or changes that happen that get an organization off course. So I want to. Okay. I wanna, all right, I want to run those by Patchy. Another one of uh, your famous list that we all. <laughs> I just think I think this way. So yes, that's it good. Is a, the way my brain works. Okay. I like so it. So the first is when you take whatever the original momentum or movement or value or virtue um, that inspired uh, the original uh, organization and you begin to formalize it, that in and of itself isn't necessarily bad, but it's when you start to f- put formation to things and put them more in concrete, that is one degree of difference. And initially, that may not be evil in and of itself, but it does begin on our trajectory. So Jesus told lots of little stories about birds and widows and fields. 
and uh, trees. And so uh, it was less formal. And so in the centuries that followed, uh, those teachings of the founder, things became a little more formalized. The second degree that happens is when you take that formulation, the formalizing concrete, and you add authority or hierarchy structures to it. And so also may not be evil in and of itself, may not be troubling to move in that direction, but that definitely is a second course change. And so even at that point, organizations can look very different than they did in their early days. Okay. Okay. Well, the third degree is when that structure, that hierarchy gets married to power, when it is reinforced or gets in bed with whether it's government or military, when it joins power. And especially if that power is willing to use coercive violence and domination. So now you're three degrees different than where you started and you're pointed in a different direction. Fourth change on our little road here is when you start uh, codifying things uh, and you create a category so that you know who's in and who's out. Wow. Okay. All right. So go, go over those one more time. The, just the you, uh, words. Yeah. When you create categories by which you know who's in and who's out. Because once you start drawing that line, you have become a different organization. So an organization can start as a center set where you're focused on like core principles or values or activities, and you all are centered on the same thing. And this is where in set theory, it transitions to being a bounded set where there is a definite boundary marker and it distinguishes who's in and who's out. This is how you can start to justify doing things that are not in the values of your organization to those outside. You start to justify behaving differently towards those on the outside. And it causes uh, a gap between your stated values and how you behave to those on the other team or those on the outside. Okay, good. Uh, uh, name the, the four uh, points again. Okay. So the first is when it becomes formalized or gets formed into more of a concrete. The second is when it takes on an authoritarian or a hierarchical structure. The third is when it gets married to power, especially if that's government or military, and there's, especially if there's violence involved. And then this fourth one is where lines are drawn about who's in and who's out. And you can begin to treat people on the outside different than your stated values on the inside. Okay. And so you, you apply that grid to evangelicalism, of course. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, let me, let me um, uh, look at it on a more macro level, if you will. All right. Uh, can, name the first one now, and then go with me. Okay. All right. When you begin to formalize those teachings or, or form them into more concrete ways. This is second century Christianity. Yeah. Okay. As we begin to see the Didache and other uh, creeds come about. Okay. What's the second one? 
when it takes on an authoritarian or a hierarchical structure. This is when uh, uh, Ignatius of Antioch begins to try and contextualize the Christian governance and puts it in a hierarchical form similar to the Roman military structure. Okay. The third is when it gets married to power, whether that's government or military. And this we call Constantinian Christianity, when Christianity and uh, the Emperor Constantine uh, became married to that. Okay. Yes, that's, that's the fourth century now. That happened yeah. in the 300s. And then the fourth is when there's a definite line about who's in and who's out, and you can treat those who are out different than your stated values inside. And that also went along with Constantinian Christianity, but uh, particularly as a little bit later towards the, uh, the, from like 1300 forward, they began to say that we hold the keys to the kingdom. Uh, we can, you have to be baptized through us. Um, even those who are uh, uh, in purgatory can be brought out by us if you pay enough money. And, um, and it sort of, Came, uh, became codified then in Protestantism as well in different ways. Um, there was a whole lot of things that sort of, so I, so you, so you're using it to describe evangelicalism, which is natural because, as I said, the chickens have come home to roost because this is the story of Christianity as well. So the fifth degree is where I think you cross over into Frankenstein Christianity or Christianism, okay. which is when, the, so this is the final stage. When the distinguishing between those who are on the inside and those on the outside is no longer connected or tethered to the values and virtues that you started with. Yeah. When, when belonging or identity is no longer contingent or dependent on uh, holding to the principles and values, the faith, that's when you've crossed over into something entirely different. And, uh, People who study such things call this what this is when it becomes, they call it a master signifier. When the thing itself, in, in this case, Christianity or evangelicalism, whatever label you're using, is no longer directly, you can't draw a straight line between it and the thing it claims to represent. In yeah. this case, the teachings of Christ. Yeah. So, so yeah, I, I agree with you, but I'd like to use it as, in a macro level to just talk okay. about Christianity. I, I've written a poem that's in my book, Shalom in the Community of Creation, an Indigenous Vision. Um, I think it's in there. Um, I'm wondering if I could read it now because um, what we're talking about uh, right now in evangelicalism, I'm saying that the egg was laid uh, the first time Christians came to this country. And I think this poem would describe it. Now, is it appropriate to read a poem now? Yeah. It's a little bit long, but um, I'll try to get to it faster. We literally have nothing else to do. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure that's not the case with everyone who's listening. <laughs> okay. Uh, the poem is called The Haunting. I'm just going to read it. Wasn't it 1492 when Columbus sailed the Azure Ocean? Salty water, lapping shores, separating neighbors. Come into our house. There is no honor in dispelling a neighbor. But unruly neighbors are a curse, and bad religion is a plague. Came the call from every corner with mangled crosses and dubious preachers. Came, you came to our land, our lives, our home. Virgin land, mother earth, milk and honey flown from her breast. You saw fences, virgin trees, sequoia mammoths, 
decorating a vast green park. You saw timber. Virgin nations going, going, gone, left from a greater civilization, but you did not see me. Land, trees, ours, you say, and the nations just a blight on your conscience. Cut the land, cut the trees, cut the nations. This is the clarion Christian call. Rape the land, rape the trees, rape the nations. Ignore my blood and tears when you pray. I am a red Indian, a raped virgin. You make me a noble whore. Thrown into dark corners with the trees and the land and lost civilizations, my spiritual reservations are places you relegate to me. Compartments fit for non-human species. Churches made from acreage and board feet. Good Indian, come to church, make them God happy. Good Indian, get job, make them government happy. Good Indian, keep quiet, subdued, silent. Quietly turn your vile abuse, your bitter loss, onto yourself and other bad Indians. Then you make them, every one of us Americans, very happy. Because we got your land and we got your trees. And never forget, never ever forget that we got God. So we got your souls. Where do the souls of dead Indians go? Where does one go after rape and torture, robbery and slavery, disease and genocide? Perhaps we join the land and the trees, lingering with the spirit of Jesus on earth to curse savage Christian civilizations. We die early and we die often, but we die slow. And we die knowing a secret that you don't even care to know. That your trees, uh, that your land will not rest. That your trees will make only crooked crosses. That your children will breathe their last breaths in despair. Groping for an identity that you could not steal for them. Grasping for an honor that always eluded them. Clenching for a God and land and trees and nations that were never theirs. And herein is the lesson. Gifts can't be stolen. And love takes flight where control makes its nest. And Jesus, oh Jesus, you crucify him anew with every sacrifice that we make to accommodate you. Wasn't it 1491 when there was no haunting? Like I said, the chickens have come home to roost. I heard, I first heard you read that poem 11 years ago, and I had never heard anything like it. And it haunted me um, for weeks. And that was a rude awakening to the legacy of not just colonial Christianity, but of white supremacy in this country. And I began to see it in so many other places that I had not, it had never dawned on me that that might be what I was looking for. Yeah. And, and is there, uh, based on your model, the five uh, steps or whatever separation, five degrees of separation, is there even um, a a distinction between anymore, or, or has there even been for maybe since the first century, a distinction between colonial Christianity and Christianity itself? 
or is it, as you like to say, baked in the bread? Is it endemic to Christianity regardless? Man. Um, I'm trying to think of how to put a positive spin on this. Here's the thing. I also learned from you that in every generation, there is a minority report. And that you can find examples of people in every generation who will witness as to the true message or the true concern or the real values uh, who will stand up and actually, you know, whether you call it speak truth to power or prophetically confront uh, the system to say, this isn't right. The way we treat these people or whatever it is, this isn't right. So I know that there are those out there who are always showing a different way or a third way, some like to call it, mm -hmm. um, out of this. Uh, but, but for the most part, it, it, the, the large percentage of what we call, whether it's Christendom or colonial Christianity or whatever, right, we're focused on, uh, is embedded with this power structure. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm a farmer, so let me use some farm analogies, you know, the have the chickens come home to roost in evangelicalism as perhaps the penultimate example of the hypocrisy that Christianity has in, um, adopted. Mm. And secondly, when do we know if we're beating a dead horse? <laughs> so, before I met you, and if I had never met you, I would say that what we are seeing now is uh, uh, a ludicrous or drunken uh, aberration, not normal at all. But you say interesting things like, uh, no, it's been like this probably for a long time, probably from the beginning, uh, you just couldn't see it because you were in the water. You should listen to native folks or uh, communities of color. We've seen this for a long time. We could have told you that this was there. So this isn't, this isn't a glitch within the system, the pattern. This is embedded in it. This is a feature of it. Okay. And um, that's, a, that's a tough pill to swallow. When you wake up to that, when you get uh, woke, <laughs> awakened to the fact that this, this quest for power, this uh, lust for control, for influence, that it is a feature and not an exception, that is a tough thing to wake up to. So let me... It's disorienting. Let me, yeah. Let me back up just a moment and get in uh, uh, another uh, uh, opinion. 
um, or maybe really it falls along the same lines. While 81%, uh, I've heard different figures, but let's just say 81% for now. Uh, and we want to get to the song, right, that was written as well and talk about that. But, but um, of white evangelicals voted for Trump, only 1% of black evangelicals voted for Trump. Now, that's a different kind of Christianity. Mm-hmm. That's a different kind of evangelicalism. And, and uh, the numbers probably um, change a bit with different communities. But I think that's, a, and, you know, I, I wish uh, we could see about natives, but I think it would be very few, probably not even 1%. But, but uh, because when they hold, see their religion, they have made it their own. And they have not necessarily held on to all the tenets and values of white Christianity. So I'm going to have to peg the problem where it lies with white European-based Christianity, European-based, mostly male theologians, um, who have been basically had a stranglehold on this thing, this religion called Christianity, for, you know, a half a millennium or more, maybe much longer. Oh, man. You know, it's so interesting because I read uh, a lot of stuff written by white people uh, trying to just wrap their mind around this or in some way get some handle on what's happening. I'll give you another, uh, for instance. I just read an interesting thing. Uh, It was suggested to me by a a white uh, scholar. Uh, and it's about there is no Christian case for Trump. It's in The Atlantic by Peter Weiner. Uh, it was written on January 30th, so yesterday it was posted. Um, but it's a very long uh, criticism and concern over thing we did our a previous episode on with the whole Christianity Today uh, controversy. And as I look at stuff like this, and there is no short supply of this these days. I mean, if you had set a Google alert for every time this type of a story uh, got posted, you would have a nonstop stream headed your way right now. I mean, it's, it's a major topic of conversation. But when you never talk about the issue of race uh, within it, you know, you're just missing a, a major component. And it's why there's so much head scratching and, and a gut wrenched soul searching is because it doesn't make sense, probably, without this issue that you keep bringing up. And, um, and it's only when you see it through that lens of saying, wait a minute, this white supremacy has been there from the beginning and it's like once you have that uh in your mind you start to see and go it seems like there's something to it (laughs) and it's why without it you never find any satisfying reasons you never it never you never actually come to any satisfying conclusions and i think it's because part of the Riddle is missing. 
Yeah. Well, part of the riddle is this. Um, white folks, because they're steeped in a Western worldview and believe that as an American, they can solve and resolve all problems. Um, they, as soon as they hear the problem, of course, they think they know it because that's part of the dualism. It's like knowing instead of like experiencing and understanding. And, uh, and so they go and try to solve it. And then it just gets worse because, um, they're trying to solve their own mess and they don't realize the mess that they're in. So, uh, if, if we can, but, but, but even look within that, there are prophetic voices that speak out like this song for the 81%. You know, the, the song's pretty interesting because it's this evangelical dude right. who's calling these people who are separating kids at the border and putting them in cages and tearing them from their mother's arms and, you know, uh, not welcoming the stranger and all of this kind of a thing. Uh, remember what Jesus said. He said, like, hey, when he sent the disciples out and he said, if they don't welcome you in your home, shake the dust off your feet and, and leave them. And, uh, this, you know, you've got these 81% Trumpers who have literally need to have the dust shaken off in their face because they've gone exactly against what Jesus taught to welcome the stranger. I'm going to read a couple lyrics from this um, hymn for the, the 81%. It starts out saying, you know, that I, you taught me how to speak and I, you put your words in my mouth and I believed these things. And then where it takes a turn as he says, they started putting kids in cages, ripping mothers from their babies, and I looked to you to speak on their behalf. But all I heard was silence, or worse, you justified it, singing glory, hallelujah, raise the flag. Your fear had turned to hatred, but you baptized it with language, torn from the pages of the good book. You weaponized religion, and you wonder why I'm leaving to find Jesus on the wrong side of your walls. And, and that's part of that, that dualism, right? It's like, we have Jesus. We have the religion. No one else does. Once you, and, and, and mostly it's found within the walls of the church, right? So what kind of a God, I don't care what your religion is, what kind of a God is that small? A, a God that doesn't have concern for all people everywhere and is not actively involved in the world around. But but evangelicals, largely white evangelicals, have have created this bubble, and then they've it's a, that's become an echo chamber. Mm. Yeah, I fear that because it is an election year, that this thing. So honestly, if I thought this thing would either fix itself or it would run out of steam you and I would not talk about it this much. But I actually think that it's about to get worse. Oh, yes. And the wheels are one coming of the off. Thing, what's that? The wheels are coming off the cart, man. <laughs> and one of the things that I see that causes me great concern is the generational gap that's developing between um, evangelicals over 50 and their children. Yeah. And it is becoming a really sharp divide and a, cl and a you know, cleft between them. And it is amazing to see just generationally something has split. 
Yeah, and it's it's funny um, that uh, you know Jesus had those uh, uh, words where he said the uh, the children uh, outside basically become wiser than the children of light is kind of the the idea, and and we have uh, a large portion. I, I don't want to name the wrong statistic because I know that you know. 79% of all statistics are made up on the spot. So, uh, but, but there's a huge, huge amount of millennials who are following Bernie Sanders, right? Okay. And they want change. Not only do they want change, they want fairness. They want justice. They want equity. They want, uh, you know, all of these things. They want, uh, they no longer want the paradigm that was handed to them by their parents and grandparents. And so, so they are about change and all the, uh, other side can do is call them socialists. And what's ironic is that pretty much if you look at Jesus, you'll find a socialist. <laughs> so, so this is that, uh, that number five, the opposite. There's no line between the founder and the, you know, you know I, uh, people ask me, uh, I don't, I don't often talk about my personal politics uh, openly. I mean, I will uh, behind the scenes, but um, the other day, somebody asked me about my politics, and I said that I believe in radical democracy, not representative democracy. And I believe in liberty and justice for all, that I'm not a literalist anymore, except on that. I really want liberty and justice for all. And I want everyone to have access, um, not necessarily for, for equality, but for uh, the ability to have buy-in. What's, what's the way you say it? Uh, yeah, we talk about equity. I talk about consen- consensus gives dignity. Yes, that it's not equality, it's equity, that people have the, the capacity, the, the availability for influence. And that's, for me, radical democracy. So this person couldn't figure out what I was saying. And so they said, well, just who are you voting for? That's what, So they <laughs> couldn't figure out what I was saying. They said, who are you voting for? And I said, let's put it this way. I think Bernie Sanders is a nice compromise. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I, I love uh, uh, the idea of a third party winning, but I know there's no chance. But um, our, I have a friend, Mark Charles. I don't know. Do you know Mark? I haven't met him yet, no. Yeah, if no one knows about uh, his campaign, he's a, uh, the only Native American. He's a Navajo. He's running um, his uh, presidential campaign in, in, as an independent. I think it's markcharles2020.com. Um, Mark said he would come on the program, by the way. So um, uh, if we'd like to have him say, but, but he has some very important things to say. But one of the things he says is if, if you think Donald Trump is the problem, and he's mostly talking to Democrats there, right? If you think Donald Trump is the problem, you have no idea what the problem is because the problem is much, much bigger than that. That is fantastic because I am so exhausted by focusing on that one uh, point, right? That's the spear of the system. Right. He's the, he's the symptom. That's all. He's, he's yeah. just a very visible symptom of the whole system. So. <laughs> very visible symptom. <laughs> of a, well, in fairness, though, when it comes to sickness, that's often um, how you get diagnosed. Is that's that, right. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy, that is some strong language. 
we want to open it up for conversation. Um, we've been getting some good feedback, some positive and some not so positive, some concern about uh, some of the topics. And these are not easy topics. So I don't uh, in any way expect that uh, everyone will be on the same page and agree with everything. I uh, hope not. No, that would be terrible. Yeah, wouldn't that be terrible? Then we'd have our own echo chamber. Yes. So, uh, listeners, we would love uh, for your feedback, whether you comment below on the page on our website, piecingitalltogether.com, or uh, on the Facebook page. You can email us if you don't want it to be out uh, in public. We also have a Twitter account. Thank you for listening in. We really do appreciate uh, you listening in. Please share this with anybody you think might be interested. Uh, Give us your comments, your questions, your concerns, and we will look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Thanks for joining us. We welcome your voice regardless of what it says. Peace out.